Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and of course, everything in between. They still have a great library podcast, which I highly suggest checking out whenever you get the chance. Now, last week we looked at the murder of Artemis Ogletree, but sadly we didn't finish it. And I do apologize for that. It was a little bit too long to stick into one part, so we're going to split it up into two parts, with the culmination coming this week. So just a quick recap here for you. Artemis left his house in Birmingham, Alabama to hitchhike to California in 1915. Along the way, at some point, he stopped in Kansas City, where he met his demise in room 1046 at the President Hotel. So now that you're all caught up, let's get into the investigation and some of the identity factors and the weird sort of stuff that went on with this case. So buckle up, we're going to finish off Artemis Ogletree. Actually, that sounded terrible, terrible. When talking about murder case, finish off. Anyway, this is Artemis Ogletree. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Naturally, after hotel staff found Artemis all tied up with a stab wound in his chest, the police were called. Now, as we know, Ogletree had died, basically on the scene in the hotel. So, what comes next? Somebody dies, police get involved. So, the Kansas City Police Department, or the KCPD, began investigating immediately by interviewing Gene Owen, who you may remember shared the last name of the fake name Ogletree gave when he signed in to the Presidential Hotel. Now, because of this, and the proximity to the dead man, struck the police as a bit interesting. So, of course, they detained her while she told them what she heard the night before. After her boyfriend came to the police station and corroborated her account, she was released and returned to Lee's Summit. Now, we may know what caused the death of Mr. Ogletree, but they did an autopsy anyway. It's a murder investigation. You never know what you might find. How many movies have you seen where, oh, the cause of death, he was strangled, and then they do an autopsy, and there's a note buried in his fucking chest or some weird shit like that. Not saying that's the cause here, but you never know. So doctors did perform an autopsy on Ogletree and determined that he had died from his wounds. Dr. Flanders had examined not just the body, but the bloodstains in the room as well. Since much of it had dried by the time he had arrived, he had estimated that the wounds had been inflicted between 4 and 5 a.m. on the day he was found, which was consistent with what Pike had seen and before Prop's first visit. Detectives searching the ominous room 1046 took note as much of what they did not find as what they did. Consistent with what Prop said, there were no clothes in the closet or the drawers. The only evidence of anything other than what Ogletree had been wearing was the tag of a necktie, indicating that it had been made by a New Jersey company. Also missing from the room was soap, shampoo, towels, and everything else basically provided by the hotel to each and every room. Furthermore, there were no knives in the room, meaning there was no cause for suicide. That thought was dismissed almost immediately, as the stab wounds in his chest could not be accounted for. Also, he was tied up, and that suggested that, hmm, yeah, yeah, probably somebody else was involved. It's hard to tie yourself up and stab yourself in the chest, or stab yourself in the chest and then tie yourself up. 
both very, very difficult tasks to do. One of the room's two glasses was found in the sink, missing a piece, and the other was on the shelf. Detectives found some other items that might have been evidence, a hairpin, safety pin, unsmoked cigarette, and a bottle full of diluted sulfuric acid. Four fingerprints, small enough that detectives believed they had been a woman's, were found in the room by the phone. They could not be matched to Ogletree or any of the hotel employees who had been known to have entered the room that day. The police sought the help of the press. Both of the city's evening newspapers carried the story on their front page the next day. Quote, There's no doubt that someone else is mixed up in all this. Detective Johnson told reporters confirming that the case was considered a homicide. Now you may remember that Mr. Ogletree did sign into the hotel under the name Roland T. Owen, which is why Gene got brought into this whole thing in the first place. It soon became apparent that that was not his name and was likely an alias. Officers in Kansas City contacted the Los Angeles Police Department to notify next of kin, but were informed that they could find no record of anyone under that name that was living in California or any Californian city at that time. The dead man's fingerprints were sent to what was at the time the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI, to find a match in their collection. A woman called the hotel president, which sounds weird, but that's the name of the hotel, not the actual president of the hotel company. Anyway, they called that night to ask what Roland T. Owen looked like. She told the desk that he had lived in Clinton, 50 miles southeast of Kansas. On January 6th, the Sunday newspaper reported that the man in room 1046 had died under an assumed name, and tips began coming in. Members of the public went to the local funeral home where he had been laid out, leading Lane to tell police of his encounter with the man. After interviewing Lane, Johnson was not as certain as Lane that the man had been Ogletree, since none of the hotel staff had reported seeing him leave or return during the night of January 3rd or 4th. Police were able to establish one sighting of Ogletree outside the hotel, however, a report that he had been seen with two women at several liquor places on 12th Street. At this point, wire services began picking up the story and it ran in newspapers and on the radio around the country with requests to send photographs to Kansas City. More leads on the man identity came in as a result and the KCPD had to devote a considerable time to corresponding with police all over the country via mail and telegram to follow up on leads. Naturally, they were able to eliminate a lot of those leads. In Kansas City, an early lead proved to be false when a bloody towel found at the hotel turned out to have been used to clean up room 1046 after the police had left. Officers recalled Probst's account that on his way there, he checked in. The man said that he had left the nearby Muhlenbach Hotel after one night due to their high rates and checked into their hotel. No Roland T. Owen had checked in there, but the staff recalled a man of Ogletree's appearance checking in under the name of Eugene K. Scott, also giving Los Angeles as his address, and requesting a room on the interior of the building. Again, after investigating, the LAPD reported that there was no one by that name in their city. However, the mystery seemed to be solved when a man identified the body as his cousin. But then, when the man's sister came to view the body, she confirmed that the cousin had in fact died five years earlier. The resemblance between the two had been very strong, however, so I understand that you can easily confuse your dead cousin for the recently dead man on the table before you. <sighs> People. A week into the investigation, Tony Bernardi, a wrestling promoter from Little Rock, Arkansas, said after viewing the body that the man 
identifying himself as Cecil Warner, had approached him at the beginning of December 1934. Bernardi had referred him to another wrestling promoter in Omaha, Nebraska, but that promoter did not recognize Ogletree. Within a few days, two new homicides in the city drew detectives' attention away from the case, even as more were assigned to the homicide squad. Leads were still followed, but less vigorously than they had been in the week after the case, and none of them yielded any significant information. Naturally, newspaper coverage also dwindled and eventually became an afterthought in the public's mind. So with leads drying up and police really dividing their attention between a bunch of other cases, what happens next? Well, they had a funeral for the man known as Roland T. Owen. The case returned to the newspapers on March 3rd when the funeral home where the body had been kept announced it would be burying the man in the city's Potter's Field the next day. That day, the funeral home received a call from a man who asked that the funeral be delayed so they could send the funeral home the money for a grave and service at Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City, Kansas. So the caller said that the dead man would be near his sister. The funeral director warned the caller he would have to tell the police about the call. The caller said he knew and that it did not bother him. The caller was slightly more forthcoming when the funeral director asked why Ogletree had been killed. According to the caller, Ogletree had an affair with one woman while engaged to marry another. The caller and the two women had apparently arranged the encounter with him at the president in order to exact revenge. Saying, quote, cheaters usually get what's coming to them, the caller said and hung up. The service was postponed per the anonymous caller's request, and on March 23rd, the funeral home received a delivery envelope. The address carefully lettered using a ruler with $25 or $500 in current money wrapped in the newspaper. It was indeed enough to cover the expenses. However, the sender was anonymous and remained unknown. Two additional envelopes with $5 each were sent to a local florist for an arrangement of 13 American Beauty roses to go with the grave. After a similar call was made to them, both phone calls turned out to have been made by payphone, including when this payment was a card with disguised handwriting reading Love Forever Luis. The funeral was held shortly afterwards. Besides the officiating minister, the only attendees were police detectives, some of who served as pallbearers. Other detectives posing as grave diggers staked out the graveyard for the next couple of days, but they came to nothing. Several days after the funeral, a woman called the Kansas City Journal Post's newsroom to inform them that their earlier story that the dead man from room 1046 would be buried in a pauper's grave was incorrect that he had in fact been given a formal funeral. She said the funeral home and the flower shop could verify this. When asked to identify herself, she said, quote, never mind, I know what I'm talking about. Pressed for what that was, she responded, quote, he got into a jam. And that promptly ended the conversation. So how do you identify a dead man properly? Well, images of him continued to be circulated nationwide on the hope that somebody would know who he was. One of these finally did when a friend of Ruby Ogletree in Birmingham, Alabama showed her an issue of the American Weekly, a Sunday newspaper supplement published by the Hearst Corporation with an article about the case. The unidentified man looked a great deal like her son Artemis, whom the family had not seen since he left to hitchhike to California in 1934. Although he had kept up correspondence with the family, they hadn't seen him in quite some time. 
Ruby contacted the KCPD and was able to provide enough information about the previous synonymous corpse, including a description of his head scar, which she explained was the result of a childhood accident in which some hot grease had spilled onto his head. In November, another issue of the supplement carried a story identifying the man as Artemis Ogletree and explaining how his identity had been determined. While that question had been answered, Ruby's account raised more questions. She'd received several letters purportedly from her son after he had been killed. The first in early 1935, postmarked in Chicago, aroused her suspicion since it was typewritten, and as far as she knew, Artemis did not know how to type. It was also written in a highly colloquial style that was not consistent with his previous letters. In May 1935, another letter purportedly from Artemis said he was going to Europe. It was followed by a special delivery letter saying that he and his ship were sailing that day. Both were sent from New York. In August of that year, Ruby received a telephone call from Memphis, Tennessee. The man calling told her that Artemis had saved his life in a fight and that Artemis himself could not call because he was now living in Cairo, Egypt, where he had married a wealthy woman and was well off. He was unable to write, said the caller, because he had lost one of his thumbs in the fight where he had been saved. This is fucking ridiculous at this point. Ruby talked to the man for half an hour. She recalled that he spoke wildly and irrationally but seemed to have first-hand knowledge of Artemis. She gave the police the name of the man identified by, however this name has never been made public. If Artemis had at some point before his death gone to Europe or anywhere else overseas, he had not done so under his own name. No steamship company at the time had any record that he had traveled with them. The consular section at the US Embassy in Cairo was unable to find any evidence that he had ever been there. So that's it, right? They buried a body, they had some information, they had some callers, but nobody was able to ever find out what happened. Well, there were some later developments and information developed through the police's conversation with Ruby Ogletree helped them establish a third hotel in Kansas, the St. Regis, where Artemis had stayed. There, he had shared a room with another man. Whether that had been the Don from earlier could not be established. In 1937, the New York City police arrested a man named Joseph Martin on a murder charge. After he had killed a man, he shared a room with and put the body in a trunk to be shipped to Memphis. Some things are starting to line up here. Among the several aliases he was found to have used was a Donald Kelso. According to his story about the case in the New Yorker, the KCPD had matched samples of his handwriting to that in the letters written by Ruby Ogletree. No charges were ever filed against the man for Ogletree's case and the KCPD kept the case open. The files show that different detectives reviewed the case every few years throughout the 50s. Each time they noted that they would keep the case open and follow up but no new evidence was ever uncovered, and eventually, the case went cold. Now fast forward 50 odd years to 2003 or 2004, where John Horner, a local historian at the Kansas City Public Library, fielded a call from somebody out of state, who said that they had been helping to inventory the belongings of an elderly person who had recently died. Among them was a shoebox, which turned out to be filled with newspaper clippings related to the case. As with the theme of the case, the caller did not identify themselves. Horner did not make this public until the conclusion of the second of the two posts he made on the library's blog, retelling the story in 2012. As with any unsolved mystery, there's at least one good theory, and this one goes like this. The absence of suspects in the case has inspired the rise of several theories. The telephone calls alleging that Ogletree was killed in retaliation 
for his broken engagement have provided support for that theory. Organized crime has also been considered since the name Don can also be a title for a mafia boss. Lastly, it has been suggested that Don, whoever he was, killed Ogletree for some personal reason. Either way, the help of the, quote, commercial woman, Blocker, saw in the hotel late that night or by himself. So that is it. Yet another cold case, unsolved murder for you here on the Ominous Origins podcast. This is Artemis Ogletree. What do you think happened to him? Lover's quarrel? Got mixed up in the wrong crowd? I don't know, it's hard to say at this point. There's not a whole lot of information or evidence available other than that he didn't want to talk. Remember when he was first found in the hotel room, stabbed and bound, he was still alive. And when asked about what happened, he said, I did it myself or something along those lines. So what happened to Artemis? I don't know, you tell me. Let me know what theories you might have about this case on social media. Anything will do, anything at all. Anyway, that's it for me this week. My name is Casey and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave that five-star review on Spotify. It's more of a rating at this point, but it works the same. If you liked it, you can leave that five-star rating on the mobile app. If you do, please let me know and I'll give you a shout-out on the show. Or you can go the old-fashioned way and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called for you. And if you do leave that five-star review, I will give you another shout-out on the show. Furthermore, you can follow me on social media on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod, on Facebook at Horror Shots, or on Twitter at Horror Shots Prod, as in production. So, until next time.